For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today, we're talking the Great Penguin Rescue, Saving a Species from Extinction. My guest today is Diane Napoli. Napoli. DiNapoli. Sorry, Diane. It's okay. How do I say that? It's DiNapoli. DiNapoli. Mm-hmm. Um, let me say a little bit about you. Um, Diane's the author of a newly released book, The Great Penguin Rescue. Diane has worked with dolphins and then nine years with the New England Aquarium's penguin colony. She founded The Penguin Lady to educate about the biology, behavior, life histories, and conservation of penguins. Diane has presented penguin programs at numerous informal learning centers, schools, colleges, and libraries. Diane is a frequent presenter at conferences and events by the Mass Marine Educators, Northeast Ocean Science Educators Consortium, and the National Marine Educators Association. Diane has shared her passion for penguins with approximately a quarter of a million people. Diane, thank you for taking this time to share your adventures and penguin trials and tribulations with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I thought rather than wax about one's past, we would just jump right into um, what it's, you know, into the life of the penguin and ask that you uh, read us a bit from your your book uh, that just came out um, and set the stage, you know, about the world through the eyes of an African penguin swimming off free off the South Africa coast. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Um, I'll, I'll read from the prologue of the book called Blackwater's Panic at Sea. There they were. The scales and the sardines flashed and shimmered as they reflected the sunlight streaming through the water. After feeding the ravenous chicks for two straight days and having swum several miles to reach the foraging grounds, the penguins were ready to eat. While they usually went out to sea in small groups, once they located a school of fish, Every penguin had to isolate and capture their own prey. Each bird was now on its own. One of the penguins took a deep breath and dove beneath the sparkling surface of the ocean, swimming until it was below the schooling fish. The penguin hovered there, its black back blending in with the dark ocean floor, helping to conceal it from the sardines above. Then, in a sudden burst of speed, it shot up through the swirling mass, grasped a silvery fish behind its gills, and while still underwater, swallowed it headfirst and whole. A swift and agile hunter, the penguin caught and swallowed several more fish before its aching lungs signaled the need to come up for air. After being underwater for several minutes, it surfaced far from where it had originally submerged. Only now, the penguin found itself in the midst of a thick and noxious substance that clung to its feathers and slowed it down as it swam. 
The caustic oil got into the bird's eyes, burning them and making it hard to see. Confused and anxious, the penguin struggled to make its way through the, the viscous black stuff floating on the surface of the ocean. The heavy oil coating its body weighed it down, making it hard to keep its head above water. The penguin frantically pumped its wings, but it was becoming increasingly difficult to move. With every breath, it inhaled some water along with the traces of oil coating its beak. Choking on the toxic mix, burning its lungs and throat, the penguin coughed and struggled to breathe. The sticky oil had caused the penguin's dense overlapping feathers to clump and separate, and the cold ocean waters now penetrated its feathers like icy fingers. The water eventually reached the penguin's skin. As its body temperature plummeted and hypothermia set in, it became weak and disoriented. The penguin swung its head from side to side, searching for the nearest landmass. If it could make it to shore, it might get some relief from the cold and the fumes. There was an island several miles off in the distance, but did the penguin have the strength to swim that far? Instinct drove it to head in that direction. But in its weakened state, it was several strenuous hours before the island was within reach. As the penguin made its final approach, the breaking waves tossed it violently against the rocks, which were now slick with oil, causing it to slip and struggle to get its footing. Exhausted, the penguin finally heaved itself onto the rocky beach, where hundreds of other penguins stood huddled together, the heavy black oil that slowly dripped from their bodies, forming expanding black puddles around their feet. <coughs> so tell us a bit about this penguin. Well, the penguin that I just read about, uh, these are the African penguins, which live off the coast of South Africa and Namibia. Um, and they're a penguin about 21 inches tall, weigh about 10 to 12 pounds. <laughs> and uh, they're often called jackass penguins because they bray like donkeys or jackasses. And uh, the population at the time of the oil spill that this book is about was about 165,000 birds, and they were already classified as a threatened species at that time. And so when this oil spill occurred, 41% of the world population was in the path of this oil spill. So it was a very devastating place for this ship to go down. Yes, and you were telling me that these penguins are rather unique in their individuality. They are. That's one of the things that, you know, when I worked with them at the New England Aquarium, surprised me to learn. You know, you see these large colonies of penguins or other birds, and you think they, they're all kind of the same. But when working on them on an individual basis, you learn that each one has a very unique personality and temperament. You get to know them on an individual basis. Um, in the wild, you can identify individual African penguins because they each have a unique uh, pattern of feathers, black spots on their chest, and it's almost like our thumbprint. You know, each person can be identified by your thumbprint or fingerprint. Well, each African penguin can be identified by the unique pattern of black feathers on their chest. Mm. So uh, researchers can really get to know individual birds. They can, and in fact, they now have a computerized program where they can capture a snapshot of, of the penguins remotely, and the computer can recognize that spot pattern. In, in the past, and what they still do, though, is to put an identification bracelet that has a number pattern on each bird that they're studying so that they can monitor them over time and track each individual. So these African penguins with their upside-down horseshoe on their chest ran into some trouble with an oil tanker. What happened there? 
They did. On June 23rd of 2000, a ship named the MV Treasure, it was sailing en route from uh, Brazil to China, and it was carrying iron ore. And it foundered about 700 miles off the coast of South Africa, a hole developed in the side of the ship, and it came into Cape Town uh, to seek refuge, and it ended up sinking a few days later. Luckily, all the crew was safely removed, but unfortunately, the ship sank between Robin and Dassin Island, and these are two of the three main breeding islands for this species of penguin. And when the ship sank, it actually was the height of the breeding season, and it was the best breeding season that researchers had recorded in 25 years for this species. So it really could not have been a worse time or a worse location. So you had record numbers of chicks standing around. Right. There were about 15,000 chicks in various stages of, you know, various ages at the time of the oil spill. Now, you know, this is not an infrequent, this is something that happens I understand this tends to happen more than we would like. Why is that? It does. Well, what happened um, with the closing of the Suez Canal, and I believe that was 1957, um, before that, these ships that were making these long journeys across the oceans would go through the Suez Canal. But when the canal closed, now these ships that really weren't designed for such heavy seas had to go around the tip of South Africa, which has some of the most violent seas on Earth. And a lot of these ships are single-hulled. They're not designed for those types of seas. And so because they have to go right past where these penguins live and breed, the, the incident of accidents and ship sinking started to increase dramatically. And so since that time, the local, uh, the local rehabilitation center in Cape Town, Sandcob, um, they've been saving these birds for about 40 years, and they've saved about 80,000 oiled penguins in that time. Um, and even if there's not a ship that sinks, um, there's always these mystery spills, which occur when the ships illegally purge their bilges and their ballast tanks, which are tainted with oil. And they're supposed to do this at the port, but that costs time and money. So instead, <clears throat> excuse me, so instead they'll do that at sea at night, and the penguins will swim through that, those little mystery oil spills as well. So uh, these very experienced uh Penguin de-oiling company or group uh, realized that this was not that kind of situation, that um, what? Well, yeah, when when the treasure sank, uh, six years prior to this, I should say that the Apollo Sea sank in almost the exact same spot on almost the same date. It was June 30th, six years prior. And at that time, 10,000 penguins were covered with oil. And that had been the largest penguin rescue to date. Excuse me. So here we go again. Yeah, and so here we go again. And so when this spill happened, they realized it was probably going to be even larger because of the location being even closer to Robin Island and the breeding birds. So immediately, Sand Cobb started contacting um, different organizations and penguin experts around the world to come help because they knew they were going to have a monstrous rescue effort on their hands. And so the two primary groups they contacted were IFAW, which is the International Fund for Animal Welfare, and they oversaw the logistics, you know, organizing and bringing in the experts and the volunteers, and the IBRRC, the International Bird Rescue and Research Center based in California, and these are the people that are the experts in de-oiling wildlife, no matter what kind of wildlife it is. 
um, and they travel around the world to help train people on how to de-oil the animals. So you and your colleague were running the, the penguin or working with the penguins at the new aquarium had to, you know, leave the aquarium shorthanded and just at a moment's notice. We did. We received a phone call on the morning. Uh, it was Wednesday. It was five days after the treasure had gone down. We knew about it, and the phone rang in the Penguin office, and my colleague, Heather Urquhart, and I, um, Estelle Vandermeer from Sandcob, she was the center director, was on the other end of the phone, and she was begging us to come help. As she was calling zoos and aquariums worldwide to ask the penguin experts to come help train people and supervise people and to give recommendations on the best care for these birds. And so two days later, we were on a plane headed for South Africa, and we were with six other people from other zoos and aquariums in the U.S., and we were the first... Diane, we're going to interrupt you there and be back after this break to learn about what she finds when she gets to South Africa with oiled penguins. This is the Green Talk Network, helping to provide a sustainable future for us all. All together now, all together now. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. For decades, we've been made aware of environmental issues, such as climate change, overpopulation, and habitat destruction. How can we stay engaged and active in helping to prevent these issues from becoming insurmountable problems for our children and beyond? Tune in to The Earth Guardian. Each week, Sherilyn Viteze will cover the issues and discuss what is being done and how you can make a difference without too much effort to improve the quality of life for everyone on Earth. Tune in Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk Network. Keep listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures, today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking today with 
Diane DiNapoli, who is the Penguin Lady and uh, has come out with a new book called The Great Penguin Rescue. And this is a story of saving a species on the brink of extinction due to an oil spill in South Africa. And when we left, you were boarding a plane and heading over to South Africa. Uh, yeah, we arrived, uh, we, we boarded a plane and we landed in South Africa. And uh, the next morning we entered this massive rescue center that was filled with 16,000 of the 19,000 penguins that were oiled in this oil spill and spent that whole day from 6.30 in the morning till 11.30 at night force-feeding hundreds of oil-covered, traumatized penguins. And was this like a day at the aquarium where you just <laughs> feed the birds? <laughs> no, it was quite a bit different. Um, it, it was pretty surreal because two days earlier we were at the aquarium feeding our colony of 70 penguins and here we were now with 16,000 that needed to be cared for and at the aquarium you know you walk up to a penguin and offer it a fish and it'll just take that fish right from your hand these were wild birds who had no experience interacting with humans did not recognize a thawed frozen fish and so each bird had to be force fed um, and that well, you is, know what shocked me was in your book you described how that they were all quiet. Yeah. Because in an aquarium, you always hear them barking, but these guys were not. Exactly. It was really sort of stunning to me when when we walked into this warehouse. You know, if if you visit penguin colonies in the wild or at a zoo or an aquarium, they're very vocal animals, and this is how they communicate with each other. And they're always braying and honking and making a lot of noise. Um, and so, of course, I expected to walk into this huge building filled with thousands of penguins. I expected it to be incredibly noisy and this cacophony of sound. But when we walked through these enormous warehouse doors into the building, it was dead silent. And in the whole time that I was there, we were there for the first three weeks or so of this rescue effort that lasted for three months. But the whole time that I was there, I think I heard one or two little penguin calls, and that was it. So it but these really, traumatized birds didn't mm -hmm. take to food too easily. No, not at all. So each penguin had to be first caught. You know, they were in these round, almost like kiddie pools, and each pool would have between 80 and 125 penguins in it. So you climbed into this pool, you had to catch a penguin, and they have razor-sharp beaks. And so, of course, you're going to defend themselves with those beaks. And you have to capture, capture the penguin, sit down on a stool, put the penguin between your legs, pry open its beak, hold it open with one hand while you reach down into a bucket to grab a slippery sardine, and then you have to shove it down their throat. And hopefully they will begin to swallow that fish. But oftentimes what they would do is start shaking their head and that fish would go flying across the pool and you have to start over again. So it was really an exhausting process for both you and the penguin to, to feed it this way. Well, most of us don't understand that penguins have necks. Yeah, they have surprisingly large necks. Um, and you don't really see that when you see photos of penguins because on land they, they stand with their heads sort of hunched into their shoulders. But really, if you were to x-ray that animal, you would see that neck is in a, a large S shape. Um, and this is so when they're swimming underwater, they can dart that head out to grab a fish or to on land or in the water to help defend themselves from predators that are coming too close. The first penguin mounted specimen put on exhibit was at the East India Marine Society in Salem at the Peabody Museum today. 
and it's got its head out. And so everyone looks at it, that's not a penguin. It's got a long neck to it and stuff. But <laughs> exactly. the taxidermist back in the mainland, you know, the, the bird was captured and shipped back in a cask of rum or something and was taxidermed by, by someone who'd never seen such a critter. Exactly. Yeah, a lot of times when you see these ta- these skeletons, they aren't really articulated correctly because the person hasn't seen them in the wild, and they don't know normally how what their posture would be like. So you managed to feed a lot of birds. We fed a lot of birds. Yeah, we basically didn't stop. We didn't stop to take a break. Um, you know, with so many animals in the building, each bird had to be fed three to five fish a day. Um, and the first fish that each bird was fed had vitamins and medications in it. Um, and so we couldn't do this, obviously, ourselves. There were just a few of us. There were 12,500 volunteers over the course of this rescue that came in me? to help. Twelve and a half thousand? Twelve and a half thousand remarkable people, who none of whom had any experience working with penguins. Many had no experience working with animals at all. And so they had to be trained from scratch, how to safely capture these birds, how to handle them, you know, without being bitten too severely, although many people were bitten on the face and uh, all over their bodies, um, and how to safely feed them, how to wash them. Um, and so it was a remarkable response, and it was an international response. People, volunteers came from all over the world to help save these penguins. That's incredible. That's mm. like a military maneuver. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> It was a voluntary, a volunteer military maneuver. And you said that the uh, fish started running out. The yeah, about three weeks into the rescue effort, the, the penguins were being fed sardines, which in South Africa they call them pilchards. And ironically, the pilchard fishery is also endangered. The, the population of, of this fish is also declining. Um, and so there's a quota that the fishermen in the region could catch legally. Um, but about three weeks into the rescue effort, they started running out of food because it was taking five to ten tons of sardines every day to feed these 20,000 penguins. Uh, and so the Minister of Fisheries, Valley Musa, came in for a meeting with the rescue organizers, and they told him what was happening. They said, you know, we're running out of fish, and if we do that, these birds are all going to starve to death. We can't release them yet because they're still covered with oil, so they won't survive if we release them. So we need more fish, otherwise they're all going to die. And there was 25% of the world population of the species in this building. And so he lifted the restrictions temporarily so that the fishermen could catch enough sardines for the rest of this rescue effort to keep the penguins alive. What a twist in fate. Usually fishermen complain about wildlife eating too much of the fish stocks. And now the fishermen are catching fish for the birds. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But they were happy to do it. They really were. It almost became a friendly competition between the fishermen to see who could catch the most fish for the penguins. <laughs> and and so slowly the oil got removed from the feathers and stuff? Yeah, every bird had to be washed, and that was a very intensive process. It would take about four days to train a volunteer how to do this. And it was a process that took two people, one to restrain the penguin while the other washed it, and they would essentially dip the penguin into a vat of hot soapy water, and they used dishwashing soap, and then agitate this soapy water through the feathers, and they would go from... Uh, bucket to bucket to bucket until the water ran clear, indicating that all that oil was removed, and a toothbrush would be used 
for the delicate areas on the face to remove that oil. And then once they had the water running clear, they would rinse them with high-pressure hoses. But under normal circumstances, you would spend 20 to 30 minutes rinsing all that soap out because if there's any residual soap left in the feathers, the feathers won't interlock and they'll, mm. they will still won't have that impervious waterproof shield that their feathers create for them. Um, but with so We're many saying anglers, the feathers have barbs on them, so they hold together. Exactly, these little microscopic barbels on the feathers, so they interlock um, with each other. Uh, but with so many penguins to clean, they, took, they couldn't spend that much time on the rinse process, so they did an abbreviated rinse for about five minutes, and then each penguin was swum for a week to two afterwards, and in that swimming and preening process that they would do in the pools, they would get rid of the rest of that residual soap. And so it was only once they were waterproofed and fattened up that they could be released. And when they were swimming, they still had to be hand-fed. You couldn't just toss the fish in. Right, yeah. They, they were never fed in the water. They were always fed in these pools. But over time, they made the transition, or most of the birds did, from being force-fed to actually walking up to us in the pool and opening up their beaks and letting us feed them, which was remarkable for me to see this transition occurring. And, and there was a training process that went along with that. But the interesting thing to note was that the first birds that took to that free feeding method were the birds that already had bands on one of their wings from the Apollo sea oil spill six years prior. So something in their little brains clicked, and they remembered from that experience, it's a lot easier to open up my mouth and let them put a fish in than to be manhandled and have this fish shoved down my throat. And so they were the first birds to free feed. That's amazing. Now, how long do penguins live? Uh, this particular species in the wild, their average lifespan is about 12 to 18 years. Um, at the New England Aquarium, we had African penguins, though, that lived to be up to 39 years old. And do um, they line up to be fed, or do you have to hand feed those old dudes? At, at the aquarium? Yeah. Oh, yeah, they would line up to be fed. They'd oh, they figured that out. off the islands to get at the food bucket. <laughs> Uh, so, what was the result of the rescue? The result of the rescue was really nothing short of miraculous. Um, as I mentioned in the Apollo sea spill six years earlier, there were 10,000 penguins rescued, and half of those birds unfortunately perished. Um, and that was because of the transport process primarily. They, they didn't have well-ventilated boxes, and many of them succumbed to carbon monoxide poisoning in the shipping trucks. And so that was one of the primary things they changed in the six intervening years, they sort of prepared for another large-scale rescue, and they designed well-ventilated boxes, and when they were transporting the birds, they were transported on open-air sheep-shipping trucks. So we didn't lose birds in transport this time. Um, but because of this incredible volunteer response, we actually saved 95% of the birds that were handled in this rescue effort, which is incredible when you think about it, because that's even higher than the average um, success rate with rehabilitating the species. Good job. What kind of numbers are we talking about? Uh, there were, in total, the, the actual numbers was just under 40,000 penguins or just under 39,000 penguins between the clean ones that were transported out of the, the path of the oil slick and the oiled birds. And so there were 1,800, just over 1,800 birds that died out of all of those birds. Amazing. We'll be right back without 39,000 penguins after this break. 
Keep listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures, today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. All together Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Ready to lift your spirit? Join Karen Tatanich every week for Spirit Connections. Karen will share with you the power of energy work. It can get you through the good times and the tough times. Karen will bring together stories of hope and good news based on her work with all aspects of energy. There are people and companies out there that are bringing joy to our planet. You'll learn about the power of spirit at home, at work, and at play. Spirit Connections is broadcast live Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on 7th Wave Network. Thank you for listening to the Green Talk Network. Help to spread the green by involving your family and friends. You're doing your part. Now help them think green. Spread the green. The Green Talk Network. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. We're... We're talking today about the Great Penguin Rescue with Diane DiNapoli. And, Diane, if people want to learn more about how to save a penguin or about the natural history of uh, African penguins or anything penguinish, uh, what do they do? Um, well, I certainly have information on my website, which is thepenguinlady.com. Um, and there are a number of wonderful organizations. Um, Global Penguin Society is a, a new organization that is starting up that is really focused on educating people about penguins and distributing funding to different researchers that are working to protect penguins as well. So I see your, pe- your website is, you know, has a, all kinds of different things to look into and, and ways to connect with the broader uh, penguin efforts. That's just great. Can, um, so... The penguin, you, tell us that number again, how many penguins you see? Um, it, was, it was 95% of the penguins that were brought in for this rescue effort, so it was over, there were um, 
almost 40,000 in all, and just 1,800 died. So, so almost 38,000 were saved. That's a lot of penguins. Yes, it is. <laughs> that's a yeah. lot of penguins. I mean, that's more than the March of the Penguins. <laughs> almost. <laughs> um, and, and, but, you know, the, the, the troubles aren't, aren't going away. You know, what, um, you know, well, do you think these spills might continue in the future? Well, yeah, you know, despite the fact that we were so successful in this rescue effort, the species still is um, under constant threat, apart from, from oiling, because of the location, again, where they are, uh, where these ships are always going by their breeding grounds, oiling is a constant threat. Um, but in addition, there are other threats that they're facing, and, and the population of the African penguin today is half of what it was 10 years ago, and that's primarily because the birds are starving. And the researchers believe the two primary reasons for this are overfishing of their food source and also the depletion of those food stocks due to the effects of global warming. Um, and so this is why these penguins are now declared endangered, just as of this past year, the African penguins declared endangered. Um, and the population models predict that if things don't change for them, they could actually be extinct in the wild in as little as 10 years. Yikes. Yeah. So the, you, you said the population is down to, what, 80,000 or something? Right. It's about 80,000 today. And you mentioned global warming. How does that affect penguins? It affects a different species in a number of ways, and it's actually affecting almost all of the 18 penguin species in, in various ways. Um, but one of the things that it does do is it shifts and moves these cold ocean currents that carry most of their prey items, and so they get moved further away from their breeding islands. And so what happens, instead of going out to sea for a day to catch food for themselves and for their growing chicks, they now have to swim maybe two or three days to find enough food. And if they are raising chicks, a chick might not survive for three days without being fed. Um, and they actually did something very interesting this past year around St. Croix Island in South Africa. They uh, did a study, the Percy Fitzpatrick Institute, which is affiliated with the University of Cape Town, put satellite tags on some of the penguins and determined what is their foraging range and how much energy are they spending looking for food. And then they closed off a 15-kilometer radius around St. Croix Island to the fishermen. So they said no fishing in this area and then continued to monitor. And they found that the penguins, instead of making three-day foraging trips, were now making one-day foraging trips and spending 40% less energy looking for food. And so if they can use that model and, and bring that to other islands where penguins are living and breeding, um, that might help to boost the populations again. So the, the, the model is to fish for sardines away from the breeding colonies. Exactly. Close off those areas right around their breeding islands. If people want to help, they could. Um, we, we, the currents are pulling the fish away that the that the penguins eat, so the currents are changing because the climate is changing. Mm -hmm. So if we reduce the uh, carbon in the atmosphere, we're helping to um, to save penguins. Exactly. You know, it's it's all connected, and it's you know you hear about global warming, and this seems like this you know huge thing, and. But to think about when we reduce our reliance on fossil fuels and re reduce our personal carbon footprints, um, we are 
doing something very specific. It, it might not seem like it, but you'll help penguins, you'll help other animals. And, you know, when we look at penguin populations, most of them have declined by 90% in the last 100 years. And 14 of the 18 species are now declared threatened or endangered. And, you know, the reason we should be concerned about that is because penguins are an indicator species. And they're indicating to us the health of their environment. So if penguins are dying, it means our oceans are dying. So we really need to each take responsibility and change our habits that are impacting the planet negatively. Some of us just care a lot about penguins. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's true. Let it be known. Penguin lovers but, out there. You know, some of us want to say penguins for the sake of being penguins. But yeah. Um, so you were saying that you know cutting back on fossil fuel use is a double advantage because it it has a a retarding influence on the climate change, but it also should re- decrease the demand for oil ships to be passing through South African waters. Exactly. And, you know, another piece of this, I mean, there's a lot of things that, that we each can do. Um, another piece of it is that those ships, those are cargo ships that are constantly traversing those waters, and they're bringing um, pro- products. You know, we if we just reduce the amount of stuff that we buy, because most of that stuff is transported by sea. And so if we just consume less in general, you know, there'll be less demand for maybe all these ships going back and forth constantly. So there are a lot of little things we can do that will have a larger impact. That's a really good point. You know, we're like 4%, Americans are like 4% of the world population, but we're 20% of the carbon emission problem. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so much of that is around unnecessary running of, of engines and, you know, one can just, well, what do you recommend for things to do to um, help us reduce that? Well, you know, everything from one of the things that people can do is start carpooling or riding a bicycle or walking instead of, you know, driving to the store that's a few hundred yards away to do your shopping. Um, Buying a hybrid vehicle, you know, is a a great way. And I, I, I have a Prius now and I love it. And, you know, I have to say I felt very smug for the first several months driving my Prius past a Hummer on the highway. Um, you know, everything, everything has an impact. Recycle everything you can. Turn off the water when brushing your teeth. Turn down the thermostat and put on a sweater in the winter instead of cranking up the heat in your house. You know, all these little things will cumulatively, if everybody does it, it will add up to make a difference. Yeah, it's really important, the little things, because people mm-hmm. talk about the big things like buying a new car, and then they put it off because it's expensive. And mm-hmm. the little things make such a difference. And a friend of mine said, oh, you should ride your bike to work. And I said, oh, no, I live too far from work. And he said, oh, you drive your car halfway, and then you ride your bike the other half of the way. <laughs> and that way I'm healthier, and, you know, it's reducing the footprint. And as you said, you know, um, carpooling, you know, once a week uh, is a 20% reduction on your, your, you know, greenhouse gas emissions from that commute. Um, mm-hmm. So every bit is really significant. It is, yeah. Because lots of little people, you know, lot, many hands make light work or, Many actions make uh, cleaner skies, I guess. Mm-hmm. And also, I don't, you know, I'm sure many of your listeners may be familiar with this, but if people want to a resource for um, calculating their own carbon footprint, there are many uh, calculators online, but a, a couple of them are carbonfootprint.com or myfootprint.org, and they can go to these websites and and figure out exactly what their their output is. And it's a rather enlightening exercise. You might be surprised when you get the results of that. And you can see very specific things that you can do to help reduce it. So what's the moral of the great penguin rescue? 
Well, the moral, I think there's a few of them. One of them really is that when people come together um, with a shared mission in mind, they can really um, do something miraculous. Because I think when, when we all walked into that warehouse with 16,000 penguins and another 3,000 at this other rescue center, I don't know that any of us expected we would be as successful as we were. And we only were because so many people cared and so many people came to help. So I think that's, that's part of it. And the other is that it really is worthwhile to save these animals and rehabilitate them when an oil spill occurs. Um, and the reason I say that is because with the recent BP spill, there was a, a German biologist, Sylvia Gauss, who was quoted saying that when they saw all these images of these heavily oiled pelicans and gulls in the Gulf, she came out saying, well, it doesn't make any sense to rehabilitate these birds because only 1% survive after the rehabilitation process, which is right. completely inaccurate. Um, you know, and a lot of people, they quote these very old statistics from bird rehabilitation. And while it's true that some bird species don't do quite as well as, say, a penguin or a pelican will, um, it's still worthwhile. And, and because those birds, you're going to get them back out there, back into the breeding population, and they can do very, very well. Um, and, and at the very least, you know, the right thing to do is to save an individual animal that's suffering. Well, the key thing is that professionals have developed techniques in how to do it. You know, it, it, it's all, I used to work for a museum and I worked for the aquarium and people would bring in injured animals and say, save this. And, well, the aquarium knows how to do that, but, but I didn't know how to do that in a little museum or something. And uh, so you, you need to know where the Animal Rescue League is or the, the local place uh, that can handle these things. And it's a daunting proposition to take on saving all the birds from a oil spill because no matter how much you expect, more come get brought in often. And uh, so it, it's so important that, that you guys did this right so it sets a standard for, you know, and it, it provides hope for all of us, I guess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you, may, you bring up a good point that it is important to not try to do this on your own. Um, not only will you maybe get injured and the animal get injured, but it's not legal. So to, if you do find an injured and oiled animal, to contact your local, you know, either fish and wildlife, aquarium, um, wildlife rehabber, even call an animal hospital because they can probably guide you to the right people to bring it, that animal to. Thank you, Diane. We'll be back with the Penguin Lady right after this. The Green Talk Network is here. Spread the green. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and 
ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. When planning for the future, we need to look at all the facets, environmental, humanitarian, and social. There are so many challenges that we face in keeping everything straight and environmentally sound. That's where the deliberacy, taking deliberate actions to benefit all, comes in. Join your host, author Christopher Eldridge, every weekend for a look at the missing cornerstone that is lacking in the solutions to the challenges we face every day. Listen Saturdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk Network. The Green Talk Network is here. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Oh, we're back. Um, so I'm here with Diane. Diane, you there? I'm here. Hey. Hi. We were talking about uh, rescuing uh, the Great Penguin Rescue in, in South Africa, uh, the rescuing of, a South, of an African penguin, and uh, global warming is having a, a major impact on them, in part by moving the currents away and in other ways stressing their food sources. Um, but is global warming having an effect on other penguin species? It, it absolutely is. It's actually affecting most of the penguin species, but in a variety of different ways. And one of the places that we're seeing the most severe impact due to global warming is on the Antarctic Peninsula. Um, this area of the world has actually warmed more than any other part of the world. Um, in some areas, a, a, an average of about 5 degrees Fahrenheit, but as much as 11 degrees Fahrenheit, which is huge when you think of you know this cold cold, dry place on, on the planet. And what's happening um, for many of the penguin colonies there, and on the peninsula you have the Gentoo penguin, the Adelie penguin, and the Chinstrap penguin that are living and breeding there, um, a few different things are happening. One is that there's actually rain there now, where 15, 20 years ago you never saw rain ever on the Antarctic Peninsula. And so the rains are falling, and these chicks, when they're covered with a fluffy down, they're not able to waterproof their feathers. And so they get covered with rain, and in fact, I saw this last year when I was there. It was raining our last day, and these Gentoo chicks were trying to huddle under their parents, and they were too big to fit underneath them, and they were just shivering in the rain. And then when it gets cold at night, they'll freeze. It, that just becomes ice on them, and they can freeze to death. Um, and so that's one of the issues. What also is happening is that um, there are areas where they're breeding, the snows are having these huge snowfalls, which they did not used to have, and then those snows melt back, 
and then the eggs and the chicks are drowned in, in these big pools of, of water that are sitting there. Um, and so the colonies are trying, they're starting to move further and further south to try and get in colder weather. Another thing that's happening in Antarctica for the emperor penguin and the Adelie penguin that breed on ice shelves, those ice shelves are melting back sometimes before the chicks are fledged into their waterproof proof feathers. And so then they enter the water and they, they drown. Um, and also that's impacting the food availability because the krill that they live on, that they eat, breeds underneath these, these vast ice shelves. And so that krill population is, is being impacted, and there's not as much krill for them to feed. Um, How is the krill population impacted? Um, what happens is the krill actually breeds underneath the ice shelves, and so what they do, that's sort of their nursery, and the, they eat the larva of the krill larva, eats the algae that grows under, on the bottom of the ice. Um, and so when that ice... So the nursery is shrinking. Right, is shrinking. So their nursery area is shrinking. Also, right. though, what's happening down there is the, the krill fishery is, again, another impact of overfishing. Um, the krill is getting harvested in tremendous, tremendous numbers by commercial fisheries. I want to back up for a second about the shivering uh, chicks out there mm. on the ice with the rain coming down. Uh, the Ocean River, at OceanRiver.org, my website, uh, my photograph shows me in Barrow, Alaska, holding a snowy owl chick that's having the same problem. You know, the snowies are used to being up there on the tundra, and what, what used to be snow has turned to rain, and these little chicks are just need to be warmed. Wow. Wow. Um, this is, this is a, an impact of global warming. I mm -hmm. don't know if it's gone up 11 degrees, but it's gone up enough so that, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the snows have turned to rain. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But but it's interesting, you know. You were saying that three times there are three times as many. I mean, three times there are three different factors there. There was the the rain. You said there was the uh, increased snow and then increased runoff that mm -hmm. was causing the flooding of uh, eggs, I guess, and, and mm -hmm. chicks and everything. And then uh, what was the third? It was the food supply. Right. The krill is being there's the food supply. The the krill fisheries or nurseries um, are being impacted because. Their nurseries are right. melting faster. Yeah. So this has been a terrible impact on. Well, you named three or four Antarctic species. Mm -hmm. uh, what are they again? The Adelie, the Chinstrap, and the Gentoo, which all breed on the peninsula, and then the Adelie also and the Emperor penguin breed on the mainland of Antarctica or around the the perimeter of Antarctica itself. And so, is, is there thoughts of call, calling them endangered species now? Yes, actually, yeah. The I'm trying to remember which ones exactly. Some of those, there's only four penguin populations that are currently stable. The emperor is one of them, um, and I believe the chinstrap is the other. But but many of the penguin species now, um, you know, they they have been declared protected. Well, they're all protected, but many have been declared threatened or endangered. Mm -hmm. You know, I should also, if we, I should point out that it's not just the Antarctic that is being impacted by global warming. If we go up north to the equator, where the warmest weather species lives, the Galapagos penguin, they are also being impacted because of the increase in El Nino storms. Both intensity and frequency of El Ninos is, has, has a devastating impact on the Galapagos penguins, the Galapagos, and there are now only about a thousand of them left. And so they are a highly endangered species. Wow. Well, what do you think that helps the emperor not be in such trouble as the other ones? 
Probably because they are the furthest south. They are breeding, you know, on Antarctica itself. Um, and so the temperatures there have probably not changed. You know, they're closer to the pole than any other species. Um, so the temperature change has, has really not impacted them as much yet. But on these ice shelves, it is starting to. They are starting to see um, emperor penguin colonies where some of these chicks have not fledged yet before the ice shelf me- melts back to where they are, and some of those chicks are drowning. So it is now starting to affect um, the emperor penguins as well. And they have been talking about, you know, we this species as well may soon become threatened or endangered. Right, that's kind of the holdouts because they're larger mm-hmm. also, so they can maybe go longer distances bringing food back to the young or something. Right, and go longer without eating as well, yeah. Yeah, and also they're, they're thermal, you know, they, they're easier to stay warm inside when they mm-hmm. have more body mass for surface area and stuff like that. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, but for all of them, it comes back to the same kinds of lessons that you told us in the last, episode, in the last se- segment about... Uh, what people can do to help penguins, which is uh, address global warming and reduce dependency on oil. Mm-hmm. I guess they're not being; these guys aren't being so impacted by uh, oil spills, but uh, they certainly are by the uh, global warming, carbon loading of the atmosphere. Right, and you know, also if people wanted to do something more directly to help penguins, yes, um, they they're and in in my book, in the Great Penguin Rescue, there's an appendix with an extensive list of penguin rescue research and conservation organizations that people can donate to. Um, Percy Fitzpatrick Institute, which I mentioned earlier, is one of them that's listed in there, as is SANCOB. Um, and I'm donating 20% of the proceeds from my book to these different organizations, as well as um, some of it to Gulf oil spill relief and restoration efforts. But um, that's something directly that people can do if they want to help penguins. And there's information on your webpage. Right. On the website, thepenguinlady.com, I have a partial listing of those groups as well. So that's a starting place. Yes, exactly. And people can always email me if they want, you know, a more extensive list as well. Diane, I want to thank you for bringing this most remarkable story to our attention and letting us delve into the life history and, and of penguins. Well, thank you for having me. It's been, it's been a pleasure. And, you know, I, I uh, thank you for, you know, taking the time to step away from caring for penguins and go out on the speaking circuit and go to colleges and go to groups and talk about this. Well, I think it's important to get the message out there to people because people do care and they do want to know what they can do to make a difference. So um, hopefully, hopefully this will inspire some, some people to get involved. I'm sure it will. Thank you very much. Until next time. This has been Ocean River Shields of Achilles. Thanks for listening.
Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Talk Network. We'll talk again then. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.